This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Oh, hey, it's your great-grandpa's granddaughter, who's also your wife, but whatever, because it's the 1700s, Allie Ward, and that'll make sense later. Back with another episode of Ologies. So this time, we are off the rails with a real first-class episode about train stuff. All kinds of train stuff. Whew. But before we get to this interview, some quick business. So thank you to patrons. I see you. I appreciate you. You make this podcast happen every week. I would not be able to pay an editor, hi Steven, what's up, to make the show without you guys. So patrons get extra content, they get to submit their questions to ologists ahead of time, they get some AMA videos once a month in which I'm usually disheveled and maybe too candid, but that's part of what you get. Uh, if you ever want to spot other ologites in the wild, there are t-shirts and hats and bathing suits, etc. pins at ologiesmerch.com. And on Mondays, I post your photos on the Ologies Instagram in the things. So if you wear Ologies merch around, just let me see it. Let me see it, kiddos. Let me look at it. Um, also, I'll be in Portland on September 15th for an event called Camp Ologies. It's a one-day thing with some ologists who will be there. There's going to be some weird crafting, a lot of science gabbing, some games. Generally just an excuse to make new friends in the woods. And tickets are 40 bucks. I'm excited to see some of you there. Also, thank you for rating and reviewing and subscribing and keeping Ologies in like the top 20 or so science podcasts on iTunes with all the big shows that have like staffs and record in not closets. Um, I'm somewhat, I would say I'm, I'm in the orange area on a scale of creepiness. Not quite red, but I'm in orange. And I read all of your reviews because it's just so nice that you leave them. And so to prove it, I read a fresh one each week. This one is from M Soldier 16. They say, this podcast is such an easy listen and makes the most ordinary and seemingly uninteresting topics seem like that little thing you've been missing your life. Would rate six stars if possible. Thank you, Soldier 16 If you're like, I don't think I'd be into this topic, go back and listen to it. I hide some weird stuff in there for everyone. Okay, Pharaoh Equinology. Y'all, this is the best 
etymology you will ever hear. It doesn't get better. This is going to be the best one. So let's do a drum roll before I break it down. It means iron horse, pharaoh, equine, iron horse. And it's the study of trains, hulking, puffing, crushing, tireless, history-altering trains. Okay, so Wendy at the Henry Ford Museum sets me up with a pharaoh equinologist, and this dude is responsible for the care of a priceless collection of historical cars and planes, several locomotives, and an operational steam train. More on why that's like a huge deal later. And the last time I went to the Ford, I stood staring up at this massive coal-powered steam locomotive, the Allegheny, which is two stories tall. It's as long as a 12-story building, and it could pull 160 cars full of coal up the Appalachian Mountains. Train nerds, it's a 266 with a power output of 7,500 horsepower. Non-train nerds, that's as technical as this episode really gets. I'll be honest with you. I just wanted to make everyone happy. Okay. Anyway, I was like, whoa, trains. What? So we met up in this little classroom off the main museum entrance, and this guy has been on TV so much talking about transportation history that he is able to produce concise, factually accurate sound bites with correct dates. She's like a tennis ball machine. He's amazing. He's an absolutely inexhaustible treasure trove of train facts. So let's not miss this. All aboard for neuroequinologist Matt Anderson. feel about the term pharaoh equinologist do you love it as much as i do I, I love it it's a lot of fun to say and it's one of those terms that you know when people first hear it they're absolutely confused by it but then when you break <laughs> it down it makes perfect sense right what iron horse is that what they were called initially yes yeah they were referred to as uh, iron horses and uh, you know did you, any western movie that you watch you know they talk about the iron horse and so forth but uh, it, it's a logical i think description of a locomotive Oh, 100%. When I found out that ferroequinologist was a word, I lost my marbles. I was like, you're kidding me. That's amazing. Whoever thought of that's a genius. Okay. So once you have secured the most enviable business card, what kinds of jobs can you do as a ferroequinologist? And what's your title here? I'm curator of transportation here at the Henry Ford. How long have you had this job? I've had this job now for about six and a half years. Really? Yeah. Was so it your dream? I, it was. I, I grew up in Michigan, not not in Detroit, but we used to drive down here every summer to visit the museum in the village. So uh, a chance to, to come work here was a dream come true. So did you see some of these trains when you were growing up, the same ones that you are in charge of? I, I did. I, I have a picture in my office of, of me as a six-year-old boy standing on the pilot of the Allegheny. <laughs> so oh it's, my God. it's very cool to come back here and now get to work with it every day. So did you realize when you were growing up that that was making that much of an imprint or how do you become 
an transportation enthusiast who turns into a job. Yeah, the enthusiast part's easy, right? I've been right. into to trains and cars really since since boyhood, but um, I, you know, I never really considered that people actually made a living at museums. So I, it never occurred to me until I actually went to college. I initially was going to be a high school history teacher, and then took a class called Intro to Public History and learned about this idea of working in museums, archives, libraries, and thought, you know, that might be kind of fun. And so far, it has been. So. Quick shout out to the museology episode with Ronnie Klein, who breaks down what it's like to work behind the scenes of all the exhibits that the rest of us aren't allowed to touch, but really want to, like so bad. Okay, Matt. Now, when you were growing up, were you into trains? I was, yes. Took my first train ride at, at two years old and uh, absolutely loved watching them go by, riding them, anything that had to do with them, playing them, certainly so. Definitely. Um, why do you think people like trains so much? Because I feel like there's two kinds of people. There are people who are into trains, and then there are people who are like, what? Yeah, trains are cool. Like, train enthusiasts are into it. Like, what happens to get people so into trains? Yeah, well, I've got sort of my enlightened, intelligent answer, and then I've got my gut answer. I think the, the enlightened answer would be the trains are really unique in American history and that they're so closely tied with the history of this country. I mean, we, we've had railroads for all but 50 years that we've had a nation. And you, know, you think about the role they played in the Civil War, you think about the Transcontinental Railroad, the effects it had really even into the early 20th century. Uh, it, it's really, really fascinating study. But I think the simpler answer is, you know, we're just fascinated by big things and on land you can't find anything much bigger than, than a train it's just incredibly impressive it's kind of awesome to see one to feel one you know you you feel trucks and cars but not the way you feel a train which kind of rumbles in your chest even before you see it so that's that's an amazing thing oh i never thought about that about the really visceral experience of having a train go by yeah it, it's really you know and you go to a railroad crossing and there's almost this builds in climax. You know, you yeah. hear the bells and the lights <laughs> yeah. start ringing, kind of builds up the anticipation. Then you hear the whistle in the distance or the horn. And then, yeah, the ground shakes underneath you as this thing goes by and you just hear the rumble of that uh, diesel motor. It, it's a lot of fun. So, side note, at least one person has been identified as being in a monogamous relationship with a steamy locomotive. So, this German man named Joaquin does admit, though, that he has this affinity for fixing things and that can lead to emotional infidelity with other objects. And a California woman named Carol is married to a train station in San Diego. She rides a bus 45 minutes a day just to hang out in the station and touch the walls and talk about her day, which honestly sounds like a healthier relationship than a lot of people have. I have never dated anyone who would ride the bus that long to kick it with me, especially while I was at work multitasking. Did you grow up with train tracks near you? Did you hear them or, or see them growing up? Yes. Yeah. We had uh, train tracks not too far from where, where I was. And I, I grew up in a town that had two railroads and kind of typical of, of American cities. And we lost one of our railroads in the 1980s. A lot of lines have now been abandoned as the railroads have kind of consolidated their operations. But uh, now I would run out and watch watch trains on both of them. A lot of fun. What was the dumbest thing you ever put on a track? Be honest. <laughs> like like everyone, of course, I put my share of coins on a railroad track, you know, to watch the pennies and the nickels get flattened. I, and, you know, I probably shouldn't say this for uh, publication, but at one point, uh, a group of friends of mine actually put uh, jumper cables on a railroad track near a railroad crossing to activate the crossing. Oh. You know, fun to experiment. How do those things work? And oh, no. uh, that, that did it. So, you know, it was uh, a lightly used line. We didn't, uh, it was in the middle of the night. We didn't put anyone in danger, but it was, it was kind of fun. Do. do I need to tell you not to do this? Because don't do this. Don't do this. Also, with the distraction of the internet now, kids would probably be like, ugh, that prank is way too much work. It's too much laborious mischief. 
they run on electricity? The, the Yeah, the uh, crossing signals are actually completed by what in effect is a short circuit caused by the metal train axle and the wheels passing over the track. So, you know, your jumper cable can create that same effect. I had no idea. Yeah, so don't, don't try this at home. But don't. It <laughs> um, did you go and find the coins after you flattened them? Of course, yeah. Yeah, and, and they fell off the tracks. You had to dig through the ballast and the, the stones, but I, I pulled them out. And, you know, it's amazing. There was really nothing recognizable of those coins after the train went over them. Oh, man. Quick aside for real, though. Playing on train tracks, super dangerous. People have suffered fatal consequences by putting even a penny on the track and then standing on another track, not knowing which track the train was barreling down. So maybe outsource the work, man. Pinterest led me to a designer in the tumbleweed-strewn wilds of West Texas who sells necklaces hand-fashioned from locally sourced, quote, train-squashed pennies off the railroad tracks in Marfa. 60 bucks. Pretty cute. Speaking of dusty vistas and westward expansion, I asked Matt for a quick history lesson, and he delivered. Now, can you give me a little bit, I know this is like a huge question. I get this is a huge question. Can you give me your like cocktail party history of trains in America? I, I could. I, you know, I think um, the, the railroad as a concept as we understand it today really starts uh, in 1828 with the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which was the first common carrier railroad in the U.S., which means it wasn't just hauling stones from a quarry or coal from a mine, but it was carrying all kinds of freight. And it, it fascinates me that the first stone, the ceremonial cornerstone for that railroad was laid by a man named Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who at that time was the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence. So I was like, ooh, maybe I'll find Find out like a fun fact about this Charles Carroll of Carrollton and huh, boy, howdy kiddos, did I? Okay, I'm gonna be quick. First off, he was the wealthiest of all the founding fathers with a fortune equivalent now to about half a billion dollars. He was from Maryland. He thought slaves should be freed, but not his. What? He also married his cousin, and the merry married cousins had seven kids most of which didn't make it. But one son was kind of like a rich ne'er-do-well, like you would expect to see in like an 80s movie about a frustrated rich father with like a deadbeat kid, or like now in like high political office. Anyway, Chucky e. C. had a remarkable shelf life and lived pretty much for an eternity. Like this guy was like an alive mummy. And so when it was time to lay the first railroad brick, they were like, Haul out Charles Carroll of Carrollton. That was his official name. Let's get him up here. He's 91 years young. Let's see him. He lived to 95 until he didn't. And then there was a national day of mourning. Okay, that was a lot of information. But let's hop the bullet train to Infoville because Matt is a walking encyclopedia. He's about to give us the most succinct railroad history lesson maybe ever. You've got this direct length to 4th of July, 1776 here at the start of the railroads. It's a, a great way, I think, of kind of passing the torch to the next generation in American history. And then, yeah, from there, lines kind of built up around the United States. They started as regional affairs like that. The B&O supposed to connect Baltimore with the Ohio River, uh, other small 
states and communities built their railroads in Michigan. We had fairly early railroads. Our first line was built in 1837, and we had only been a state for a, you know, a year at that point, basically. Um, and then those smaller lines start to grow into each other and consolidate. The Civil War, I think, is a big turning point, too. And then after that, you've got things like uh, standard gauge now, where railroads aren't, aren't some of them were six feet before, some of them four feet, eight and a half inches. They all became the same gauge, so we have a real interchangeable network. And then they peak right about 1915, 1916 with the maximum mileage in the U.S. And then from that point, it's been a slow story of kind of uh, abandonment of lines or, or backtracking, if you pardon the expression. And uh, of course, a lot of that is because of the automobile and, and then later airplanes as well. But railroads are still a vital part of American life today. We just don't think of them. They're, they're like the, uh, the plumbing in our house. You know, you just you take it for granted until something goes right. wrong. Oh, God, that's true. Now, is it hard for you because you also curate automobiles here? Do you have something in your head that's like a little trains versus cars? Like, are you ever are you ever like a little PO'd at cars because of uh, how they took over for trains? You know, I do wish that we had the uh, the robust passenger network that we had, you know, even just 50, 60 years ago uh, that we just don't have today. I mean, Amtrak is out there, but it's really a skeleton of what we once had. So it would be nice to hop into a train sometimes and take a trip, you know, some distance rather than having to drive there. So, yeah, there's there's a little bit of me who's like that. But, you know, I also realized that railroads had a part in popularizing the automobile. You know, they saw the car not as an enemy when it first appeared, but they saw it as a possible ally. You know, farmers can bring goods from their farm to our depot rather than us having to build all these little branch lines that, that don't make enough money for us. But obviously it... Uh, <laughs> Cars grew a little farther beyond what railroads anticipated. And now what happens to abandoned railroad lines? Like, are they paved over? Are they just kind of sitting there and like, maybe we'll use them later with different types of locomotives? Yeah, we've got uh, a great program in this country called Rails to Trails, the Rails to Trails Conservancy, which has argued for the preservation of these corridors. And uh, a lot of them, particularly here in Michigan, where we've had a lot of lines abandoned, get paved over and turned into all-purpose recreational trails. So for biking, jogging hiking, you name it. So it's a great use. Side note, I had to see what they look like. So I checked the Instagram hashtag to see if anyone else had even heard of this. And hi, hello, there were like 34,000 photos tagged rails to trails. Good God, the majesty. There's like tunnels and lush greenery and biking and trestles you can walk over. And so I went to railstotrails.org and they have this interactive map. You can click your state. You can find all the abandoned railway lines you can hike on. And I started getting, I'm not kidding you, stomach cramps from excitement just because it looks so beautiful. But then Looking at and retracing these abandoned tracks, it's a weird kind of chilling reflection on late 1800s westward expansion in America. There's so much history there. Between 1870 and 1900, the railroads helped millions of East Coast Americans and immigrants head west into the sunset, but not without a steep and just tragic price paid by Native populations. And as long as we're brushing briefly up on American history, a note about the Underground Railroad. Now, this was an escape network that freed, by some estimates, up to 100,000 slaves in America. Former slave abolitionist and activist Harry Tubman herself made 13 trips to the South to free 70 slaves. But... FYI, the Underground Railroad was neither literally underground 
nor was it a railroad. It was a secret movement, yes, and it used rail terminology as code, like the terms stations and conductors, hence the name. So these are topics that deserve their own in-depth future episodes, and they will get them. But anyway, go rail to trail yourself, because it's very beautiful. Theoretically, those corridors are then preserved. So if we find a need for the railroads later, we can put them back together and relay the track. But politically, I'm not sure how well that could happen because people get so attached to those trails that they will not want the railroad to come back in if we ever get to that point. So who knows? And now what happened in motor cities where you see kind of a robust rail line and then cars start to take over, like in Los Angeles. What happened to the train system in Los Angeles or Detroit? Once the automobile came around, did did it kind of phase it out more aggressively, more intentionally? Yeah, the automobile came at, at, at a, uh, a bad time for, for railroads, obviously, you know, bringing in all of this change. But, you know, not long after the, the automobile appears on the scene, we have the Great Depression, where already we have railroad lines and uh, streetcar operators suffering from losing traffic to the automobile. But now they've got this additional impact to the Great Depression. So they go through that period really not being able to invest and improve their equipment or improve the track and so forth. And then they get hit with World War II, which all of a sudden there's now curbs on automobile transportation, there's rationing. So people aren't driving. They're going back to streetcars, back to railroads. And now railroads, having suffered through the Depression, are kind of getting beat by too much traffic. And uh, you, know, you have to feel bad for some of the lines, which thought that this is kind of a rebirth of, of railroad passenger service. So they invest in new equipment at this time. But then, of course, as soon as the war is over, everybody wants a new car and they get them. And then we're off onto the interstate highways. And here we are. So to recap that, everyone said to trains like, later, loser, I'm buying a car. And then they were like, never mind. I'm back. We can't have cars because everyone is off killing each other. And the rail system was like, ah, oh, you came back to me. I'm so happy I made you dinner. I knitted you a cardigan with our initials. I'm investing so much into myself for your return. And then the war was over and we were like, psych, you suck. I'm spending my American dollars on metal cars. And the railroads were like, my train heart, it is broken. So what's going to happen? Is there another act before the credits roll on our romance with trains? Now, do you get excited about the future of rail? Like, are you all up in Hyperloop news or are you like, I'm strictly like terrestrial railroad vintage style? You know, I, I, uh, it's interesting to read about these new technologies, Hyperloop, Maglev, whatever it might be. But then, you know, I also think that well, we've got a proven technology in the railroad with the infrastructure already built. And yeah, it would be cool to ride in something that goes 400 miles an hour, but I'd be perfectly happy with 150 miles on a traditional <laughs> railroad route. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Before we get off track, let's just pump the brakes and cover quickly. How the hell does a train work? Okay. Here's the deal. So super train enthusiasts, you are going to think this is too simple. If you notify me telling me that this info is too broad, I will simply respond with a link to Wikipedia. I just needed to know the basics. So I'm going to give you guys really broad strokes. Now, the first like air quotes trains were just rutways in the roads in Roman times that carts could kind of just shimmy down with ease. And then in the 1500s in Germany, they started pulling bins full of stuff on tracks by hands, and they called these hunds. A hundred years later, they were like, this is bullcrap. Let's use horses. And they made things called wagonways. Now, in the 1700s, a Scottish dude named James Watt invented the steam engine. Coal or wood is burned, which heats water, which powers motors 
to do things. Cut to 1804. The first steam locomotive hauled iron in Wales. And then by the 1830s, they were like, well, shoot, let's stuff some people in these ding-dang cars. And then in the late 1800s, other power sources started cropping up, like electric diesel engines. 1920s, 1930s, diesel starts to take over. It's cleaner and more efficient, and steam engines begin to decline. Now, electric-powered subways and streetcars, they work by running on rails, and they grab power from the third rail or from wires overhead. Bullet trains, like those in Japan and France, which rule, those start cropping up in the late 1960s, 1970s. They have speeds of over 200 kilometers per hour. That's almost 140 miles per hour. That was a big deal back then. And then maglev trains kind of rounded the corner in a blur. If you're like, what is a maglev? Maglev is short for magnetic levitation, and that's because it's a floating in air, people. Welcome to the future. So magnets levitate the train just a little bit, and then another set of magnets pull it forward. And the first commercial maglev train debuted in Shanghai on New Year's Day 2004, and the latest train speed record was set by a Japanese maglev bullet train in 2015 that went 603 kilometers per hour. That is 375 miles per hour. Pretty good. Pretty, 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 pretty good. It's not as good as like a Boeing 747, which has a cruising speed of like 550 miles per hour, or as fast as an actual bullet which rolls at like 1,700 miles per hour. But personally, I'd rather ride the rails than deal with flight delays. Or I guess if we're following this comparison, a very fast gunshot. So way to go, Maglev. Now, what's next? A lot of folks are working to make Elon Musk's Hyperloop fever dreams a reality. Now, this would be modular passenger pods that speed, they hope, at like 700 miles per hour in a vacuum chambered tube propelled by maglev. Now, tests are happening in Nevada, deserts, all over the world. They're trying to figure this out. I, for one, am ready for this miracle of speed to happen to my travel butt. But I guess that would mean less epically long train journeys. What's the longest train trip you've ever taken? I, I've taken several trips uh, from, say, this part of the country out to Washington, D.C. So not not a long distance, not going over the whole country. But, you know, it's, it's a nice overnight trip. You don't get too cramped in the train and uh, you wake up, you're refreshed and you know, you've gotten there and you've traveled when you otherwise would have been sleeping. So it's not as though you lose any time on an overnight train trip like that. I was going to do a helpful aside here about how if you do overnights, get the sleeper car, blah, 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 it's worth it. But the real news is that I found out that a lot of trains have a hopper system for the toilets, which mean they just dump it out raw on the tracks like bye. And I found that out from a site called toiletguru.com, where this one random dude just answers everyone's questions about toilets. And on that site, I also learned that Hitler's toilet resides in a very grimy auto repair shop in Florence, New Jersey, where it was actively, casually in use for years. And that's very weird and also fitting for someone who has a legacy of being the world's biggest turd. Anyway, let's get into some nuts and bolts of interesting terminology, train language, train tranglage, if you will. Shall we? Okay. 
Can you give me a little bit of an overview of what a train is? Because I learned recently that the train and the locomotive are two different things. Train enthusiasts are like, how dare you not know that? But can you give me the parts of a train anatomy? Yes, nothing uh, drives a ferroechnologist more crazy than people calling locomotives trains. But yeah. yes, the locomotive is, is just the engine, whether it's a diesel electric or a steam locomotive. Uh, that in itself is not a train. It's not until you couple cars to it that you have a train. So it's the locomotive and the freight cars, the passenger cars, whatever it might be. All of those together form a train. And now what's that caboose doing? Is it whatever the last car is a caboose or does a caboose have to be red and cute? <laughs> Cabooses tend to be red and cute just because red was a fairly inexpensive paint color and it was highly visible. And the point is to make the end of the train visible to following trains in, in case of some kind of emergency stop or something. But yeah, the caboose is, is much lamented. Those started to fade away by the late 70s, early 80s. Now they're all but extinct, except for local trains or maybe moving through rail yards or something. But yeah, every time I see a train go by without a caboose, it feels like you know reading a sentence without the period at the end. It's, it's just not complete. It's, uh, it's like texting grammar. Yeah, that's right. What? Okay, I never knew that. Also, I just looked it up and the word caboose was lifted from ship talk. It's, that was the little room that sailors would cook in, probably from some Dutch word. And it's used in train language because the caboose was the hangout car for the crew. Isn't that cute? They're like, I'll be in the back. I'm gonna go kick it in the last car. Also, in Bronx, Pennsylvania, there's a place called the Red Caboose Motel that began when a guy in the 1960s on a dare bid on 19 cabooses in an auction and to his shock learned that he won them. So he was like, uh, he turned them into a hotel at which you can still stay. It's like $116 a night. They also have a honeymoon suite caboose with a jacuzzi tub. Just saying, I think you should spend your wedding night there. You don't have to take the suggestion, but maybe you should. But really, like, check the Yelp reviews first, because I don't want to ruin anything. Now, what happens when train enthusiasts or pharaoh or fellow pharaoh equinologists get together. What are, what are those parties like? Uh, they're, they're pretty fun. You know, there's a lot of uh, slides showing and nowadays, you, you know, show your pictures on the, the computer or what have you to show, you know, look at this train I rode or look at this great photo, the composition of the image that I captured. You know, I, I waited in the rain for three hours to get this shot. And that's what they do. Or there's talk about the history of, of railroads or a lot of them are model railroaders. So they talk about uh, what they've been doing out there or show you the latest improvements to their model railroad. Or you, you dream a little bit about things you'd like to do, like to see uh, railroads in, in China. were still using steam until very recently. You know, people will travel to those places just to have that experience. Okay. Now, what about model trains? Do people like the hands-on experience? Maybe we all love playing God a little? Yeah, the, the model railroad allows you to kind of play trains to live out that, that fantasy that you've always had. And, you know, I, as a kid, I had model trains. I didn't do much more than just run them around as fast as I could for fun. But some of these uh, modelers, they get seriously uh, into it, you know, in that they, they actually run freight on their model railroad and they dispatch the trains and they switch out the cars. You know, heaven forbid you touch a car, pick it up by hand. You've got to move it just like the real railroad with a locomotive. So that's, that's pretty serious stuff. You know, it's still play, but at a far more advanced level than uh, what we were doing as kids. So the Henry Ford Museum has this whole area of model trains overseen by, at least when I last went, some kind white haired gents who were eager as all get out to answer questions. So my main question was, do you ever get on the tables and stomp on these like Godzilla? But I wanted to preserve the mystery, so I didn't ask. When you are taking care of the locomotives here, which you have known personally since you were like six, 
What does that involve? Because the locomotives that you have at the Ford are massive. What do you have to do to keep those up? Do you have to dust them? Do you have to make sure that squirrels don't live in them? What Do you have to oil them? What happens? We are lucky in that a lot of our signature locomotives, particularly the Allegheny, that, that massive one we have on the floor, that has always been inside for as long as we've had it. And that's one of the real challenges with rail preservation. These things are just so big and you leave them outside, they get exposed to weather and over time they're going to degrade. So we're lucky. There's not too much we have to do with the Allegheny other than maybe dust it off a little bit or because the cab is open and kids can climb up there, we've got to make sure that there's no damage. We have replaced all the controls with replicas. So, you know, if something gets broken, it's not damaging an original piece. It's a different story for our operating steam railroad out in Greenfield Village. There we do have a, a crew of uh, locomotive specialists who are out there working on those locomotives every day, maintaining them, oiling them, cleaning them, cleaning out the ash, doing regular maintenance with them. And uh, you know, we like to say out there, we're not just preserving the equipment, we're preserving the skills. I mean, there's nowhere else in the country other than at railroad museums where people are doing that kind of work every day. Oh, that's a good point. So, hot tip, Pharaoh Equifiles, to work in a Ding Dang Museum, dig into your scrapbooks. I feel like an employer can't turn you down if you have a picture of yourself as a human puppy sitting on their exhibit. Like, legally, they can't say no. How many trains and locomotives do you have here at the museum? And do you have a favorite? Yeah, I, I would pick uh, my uh, my favorite would be the sentimental one, the Allegheny, which I think a lot of people would pick as their favorite just because it's so massive. But we have a large collection here. We've got, thinking off the top of my head, we have about seven or so locomotives, maybe closer to 10 when you count the diesel electrics. Uh, a few of them operate. Most of them are just static displays. And then we have several cars beyond that, passenger cars, freight cars, box cars. We have two cabooses, for example. And uh, they, they run the gamut from uh, a replica of an 1860s Civil War era passenger coach up to Henry Ford's private rail car that he used, which was the equivalent of the Learjet of the 19-teens and 1920s. Wait, you could have your own private rail car where you're just like, hey, I'm going to roll up with my rail car and take me over here. It's all. It's like your second home. Yes, if if you had sufficient means, you could buy uh, your own rail car. I think he paid something like one hundred and fifty thousand for it, which <gasps> sounds like a bargain today. But of course, in nineteen fifteen, sixteen, that would have been big money. Oh and, my god! Uh, FYI, I asked a website, and by today's standards, that would be equivalent to a train car costing three point seven million dollars, which is like the cost of a small private jet. Yeah, that's Oprah money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, they would just put it onto the back of a regularly scheduled train and you could ride in privacy off to, to New York or Washington, wherever you might be going. Oh, that's the way to live. Yeah. I mean, it, it is funny that a, a dude who pretty much invented the automotive industry was like, I'm just going to hop a train. We do them both. Now, where do you guys get these locomotives? Do you buy them on Craigslist? Where do they come from? We've uh, gotten them from a variety of places. The the Allegheny, again, is an example we got from the CNO Railway itself, the company that, that bought that locomotive. And it's a great story with that engine because the CNO hauled coal. So, you know, they were resistant to adopt diesel electric locomotives. They stuck with steam because of some loyalty to their, their primary business there. But the Allegheny was built in 1941. We got it in 1956. So that's, you know, 15 years of operation, which is not long at all for a locomotive. Typically, they'll run for decades, not, yeah. not just 15 years. This was retired just four years older than my current 2007 Prius. Yeah, they kind of gave up the ghost on coal and decided to move to diesel electric. So we got that from the railroad. Uh, we've got another locomotive, which we got from a, a local energy company here, which used it as a switching locomotive in their own yard. Uh, we've got other pieces that have come in some cases from private collectors, people who bought this equipment and then for whatever reason decided they didn't want it anymore and then gave it to us. Oh. 
Have you ever cried about a train? I I have cried sometimes about just the the passing of the railroad in general. Like I talked about those two lines that grew up in my hometown. You know, I I had a favorite between the two, and of course the favorite is the one that's abandoned now. So you know, it's sad to to think because I would just love to be able to ride that line again, to go that route, travel that distance, and you know, I think it probably is never coming back at this point. So it's just uh, just exists in memory. I wonder if a lot of people do long transcontinental hikes on abandoned railroads. I know that you said that they were turning them maybe into trails, but if anyone's like, I'm going to traverse the country based on the old rail lines. Yeah, there are people who, who do that. And, you know, rail lines really do make ideal hiking trails because they go off into some very wild areas. You get some beautiful scenic views that you can't get from the expressway or, or anywhere else. And also because they're designed for railroads, they tend to be fairly level, too. The, the grades are not steep. They're very gentle. Did you watch Stand By Me as a kid? I, I did, yes. I think about that scene when they're on the bridge, they're running from the locomotive. Yeah, we've all had uh, nightmares like that, I think. Have you ever gotten to drive a locomotive? I have, actually. I got a chance to uh, fire on a steam locomotive once, which uh, hotter than, than hell, if I may say. So really? just miserable. In fact, our own crew, is, it's been in the 90s here in, in the Detroit area the last couple of days. They were talking about in the cab, they measured it at 135, 136 degrees, I think. And they're working in those conditions throughout the day. So a lot of water and a lot of rest breaks. But yes, I got to shovel coal into a locomotive, which is far more challenging than you might think. It's not just shoveling coal into the hole and that's it. You've got to get that coal spread even inside the firebox. So there's some real skill in it. And I also got to operate a diesel electric locomotive, which is a lot of fun. And the big takeaway for me from that was how quickly those locomotives can get away from you. Even the slightest hill, you pick up speed very quickly and you start to realize what a skill it is to control that much weight. And, you know, I was just running the locomotive, no cars behind it. So it would have been even more difficult in that situation. So side note, I got to drive a locomotive once, just like a few hundred feet on a test track. And I just hooted the horn the entire time, and I have no regrets. How do they test people's ability to drive a locomotive? Because that seems like a thing, like you can't just go practice at a church parking lot, like when you're getting your driver's license. How do you learn how to do that without killing everyone? Yeah, it's equivalent to an apprentice program, whether it's on the the, the actual operating business railroads or uh, on a railroad like ours here at Greenfield Village. You, know, you learn under the study of someone who knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. and you, you learn by doing, going through the experience, practicing, and eventually you, know, you get to the point where you don't need the apprentice supervision anymore, and, and you're off on your own. Ooh. So you just have to watch over someone's shoulder. It's kind of like learning to be a surgeon, I guess. Also, and I had nowhere else in this episode to put it, so I'm just going to add it here. The Hogwarts Express train is an actual steam locomotive in Scotland. You can ride it. It's called the Jacobite, and it even crosses the bridge to Hogwarts, which is a 21-arch viaduct. Just in case you're like, oh no, my bucket list. I have done all the items. Well, there's a new one, kiddos. Okay, let's get to the rapid fire round. But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to AliWord.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work work in those fields. And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. 
What do you get for the mom who burst you into the world? I know, a candle. Are you like, no, that's not quite enough. How about memories that she'll love looking at every day? Aura frames? I love them. So they're a digital photo frame. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and by me. And Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos, and you can invite as many people as you want to the frame. There are absolutely no hidden fees. There's no subscriptions. You can also react with cute emojis if you'd like, and you can show you love a photo. You can send congratulations or more. It's so wonderful that A, it's not a candle. And also, it's not sharing your photos on social media to look at. It's just there. You can share it with the people who you love. I have mentioned this so many times, but my parents have an aura that I got them. My dad loved that. I have gotten aura frames for friends, for family members, for family members of friends. So I'm a really big fan of them. I love what they do. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. So that's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the code ologies at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I love these things. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwi.
kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay your questions. We got a truly staggering number of of questions. Okay, Spencer Toth wants to know, why was I told as a child that putting salt on a train track was illegal? That's an interesting question. I, I would say it's probably because putting anything on a train track is illegal. You know, theoretically, even being near the train track is illegal. It's, it's private property. Oh no, oops, this gets sad. The railroad owns that corridor and, and for obvious reasons. I mean, it's very dangerous to, to walk too close to those when a train is coming. And it, it's surprising the number of pedestrian fatalities there are and you know theoretically anybody in that situation it's the pedestrian's fault because they shouldn't have been there in the first place but now we have people who are you know tuned out of the world listening to their their iphones and so forth and uh, yeah even for as large as they are you know a fast moving train can sneak up on you much faster than you might think so right so it's illegal to breathe on a rail <laughs> it would be theoretically yeah just in case you're like Tempting the Grim Reaper by train sounds relatively unthreatening. Just please know that the Federal Rail Administration says that train-related deaths are at a 10-year high. Almost 900 people in the U.S. were killed due to train-related incidents last year. 575 of them, trespassers, abundantly in their 20s and 30s, walking on active tracks or hopping freight trains. And I went to do a little bit more research, which landed me on a Wikipedia page called list of selfie-related injuries and deaths. And it was really sad. I could not read through it all. Let's just say I did glance and I saw the word train a lot. So kiddos, playing on trains is statistically a hundred times more likely to kill you than a shark, if I may get selacomorphological on you. Now, if you want a selfie with a train, go to a museum. Don't do any trespassing on any tracks, okay? That's because I care about you. Love, Dad. Really, the only place you can be is if you're at a crossing. And in that case, you shouldn't be stopping. You, know, you should be just crossing and going about your business. So no salt on train tracks. Also, no people on train tracks. Al Martinez wants to know, what's the current thinking on high-speed rail in the U.S., both across the country and high-population states, such as California, Florida, Texas? Yeah, we've got some movement toward high-speed rail here, though. Our high-speed rail is, is a shadow of what they have in Europe, where they're doing 200 miles an hour or better. Here, you know, 120 miles is considered pretty high speed. And uh, we've had some success in, in short corridors. The, the difficulty is that Amtrak runs on a lot of freight-owned railroads. And, uh, of course, the freight operators want to run freight trains on there, too. And high-speed passenger trains and slower-speed freight trains don't mix well, as you might imagine. Whoa, that speed difference was news to me. Although thinking of huge bins of coal on like a bullet train does seem a little excessive. 
That's why really the, the Northeast corridor between Washington and Boston now is really the showpiece because Amtrak owns most of that right of way. So they can run at whatever speeds they want. Oh, I never knew that. I always wondered why California's train game was just so <laughs> poor. Yeah. No, they, they have to share the, the space. And of course, those in a lot of cases, those tracks were built or at least the right of ways were laid out you know, in the 19th century. So they were designed for slower speeds. And if you want to run at higher speeds, you need longer, straighter stretches of track, more gentle curves. So a lot of that has to be rebuilt. Uh, that's why it's just in some cases simpler to build a brand new track like they're doing with the high speed rail out in California. Just quick aside, I figured he was talking about the Hyperloop, but there's a different high-speed rail. In 2015, workers in Fresno, California, broke ground on an electric California high-speed rail that'll cost maybe $100 billion. But it may be done in 2030. Train expectations are so low in LA that we're just like, that's fine. We're fine riding motorized razor scooters in traffic while y'all work it out. Pia Foxhall wants to know, why is there such a huge variation in train track sizes and widths all over the world? Why isn't there more standardization, essentially? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That was a problem here in the United States. In fact, it's uh, one of the major factors that's cited for the reason that the, the South lost the Civil War is that they had a mishmash of different track sizes, some of them five feet wide, some of them six feet wide, some of them the standard four feet, eight and a half inches, or in the north, they tended all to be the same gauge. So you could move a car from one railroad line to another without having to stop and unload everything, reload it. And uh, no, around the world, you're right. There are different standards, and, and often it's just based on local preference. I mean, uh, here in the U.S., we have four feet, eight and a half inches, because a lot of what we learned, we learned from Great Britain, where they use four feet and eight and a half inches for their gauge. And uh, it seems to be, on the whole, sort of the ideal. Anything wider than that gets to be kind of difficult and cumbersome. Anything more narrow than that, uh, you can't carry as much freight. So, you know, for whatever reason, that's uh, that's what we've gone with. Is that a more round number in metric or four feet, eight and a half inches is very specific? <laughs> it is. And it, it's really not not any more round in, in, in metric. I never knew that about the Civil War. That's amazing. Also, four feet, 8.5 inches rounds to and also nonsensical 143.51 centimeters. So, okay, he says... And it, it, the story I've heard is that that was the width of, uh, and I think it's just a, a myth, but the width of uh, the wheels on Roman chariots were about four feet, eight and a half inches. And that's like the width that accommodates two horses. Who knows? Okay. I was curious. Is this accurate? And how wide are horse butts? So I did a little investigating and I found a paper titled Morphometric Measurements and Animal Performance Indices in a Study of Forms of Brazilian Sport Horses Undergoing Training for Eventing. And according to their statistics... 0.55 meters was the average width of a horse butt, which converts to 1.8 feet. So times two horses is 3.6 feet with 14.5 inches or a little over a foot between the horse butts for tail swishing, I suppose. For, for whatever reason, though, that's the, the number that we settled on. And, uh, you know, one number is as good as any other, frankly, as long as every track is the same number. So. Wow, I wonder if there's a they have special yardsticks when they're putting that together. Like, how do they make sure? They do. We, we've got out on our road, we've got gauge rods, which are just you know, metal pieces that are measured to exactly four feet, eight and a half inches. And that's, I should say, measured from the inside surface of the rail, not from the center of the rail or something. So we can put that out there and check every so often to make sure that our track is in perfect gauge. It's obviously a problem if the gauge gets a little wide, you know, the, the, the wheels are wide enough to compensate. But if it gets too wide, you've got a car on the ground and, and that can be a big problem. 
problem. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty big, heavy problem. Um, what are the railroad ties made out of? Uh, for the most part, they're, they're made out of wood, treated wood, treated with creosote usually to prevent rotting or wear to make them last a little longer. And uh, the kind of wood they use varies. It might be oak, it might be pine, just whatever might be available locally. Uh, they have, in some cases, moved toward concrete ties, particularly with higher speed railroads, just because those last a little longer and they're less prone to kind of stretching and, and shrinking in, in the heat. There's something about creosote that smells so good. I don't know why. It's a classic railroad smell. Yeah, the coal smoke and the creosote. Oh, for sure. Is Did anyone make a country song about that? Coal smoke <laughs> and creosote. If they haven't, they should. So side note, there are some good, sad country songs about trains, I found out. Like Willie Nelson's City of New Orleans about the flagging power of the rail system in America. But in terms of weep core, perhaps nothing could beat the George Strait ditty called Trains Make Me Lonesome. And the next thing that we knew Some old train came passing through And daddy got on board And we ain't seen him no more I wonder why trains Make me lonesome I got so sad for George Strait, and then I just started reading about his history. But George, what the hell? According to Wikipedia, when George was in the fourth grade, his father and mother were divorced. His mother moved away. George and his brother were raised by their father. Dude, George, you just threw your dad under the bus or the train so hard with that song. Now, in the name of single dads everywhere, I hope at some point George bought his daddy a $3.7 million train car is just an apology. All right, onward. Also, this next question is from your favorite Mars expert from the Areology episode. Okay, Jennifer Booz wants to know, why do the trains go too fast sometimes and derail? Is there not a good way to limit the speed on certain parts of the track? Yeah, so this is an issue now that, that we've been dealing with the last 10 years or so in the U.S., the um, adoption of positive train control. And you know, one of the advantages railroads have over any other kind of transportation, frankly, is that they are on a fixed guideway. They're on, on rails. So theoretically, there should be some automatic way to stop them without worrying about them swerving and crashing off the side of the road. And uh, what we're trying to do now is pass legislation that will put in automatic control units in a locomotive cab so that if the signal, the equivalent of a stop light on a highway is red and the engineer for whatever reason disregards that signal and does not stop, the locomotive will automatically lose power, slow down and stop. But uh, we're facing some of the same problems that they did when they tried to make all the tracks the same gauge. You know, every railroad uses a different system and to try and get everything to work universally is taking a lot of money and a lot of time, more so than we might have anticipated. But uh, it would make us safer, I think, and, and prevent some of the accidents we've seen in recent years. Right. It must. I mean, when you see the news and it's like there was a train derailment that was possibly influenced by texting, you're like, oh, my God, that was not a problem in the 1800s. Although. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's frightening enough when you hear about people driving and texting. But when you're in a railroad situation, it's just it's abhorrent because, you know, the, the engineer is a professional. You trust the crew to deliver people safely. And if somebody on the crew is texting, it's just a, it is a dereliction of duty. And those kinds of distractions, the railroads police very, very thoroughly. And I mean, that's a fireable offense. If you're caught doing that, there's no second chance. Oh, sure. Yeah. I imagine you can't even like eat a sandwich when you're operating a train. Yeah. When you're there that you know, you've got the one job to do and that's what you better be doing. Right. Like smoothies only. 
no hummus and chip dip too involved. Okay, Lindsay Loper wants to know, why were villains in old movies always tying people to railroad tracks? Was this something people were actually afraid of? That's that's a great question. You know, I frankly, I, I'm not aware of any specific incident in history where someone was tied to a railroad track by a villain. It may have happened, but I, you know, I think it's uh, become kind of a, a Hollywood trope, and it probably comes back to the early silent movies when when that was done. But railroads were seen as dangerous, as they are dangerous if you're you're trespassing or in the wrong place. Meanwhile, a short distance away, Snidely Whiplash was up to his favorite pastime: tying women to railroad tracks. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. So according to the straight dope, these incidents have happened, but the victims tended to be men and they occurred after this crime was popularized in fiction in dozens of plays. The first of which was an 1863 British production called The Engineer. Now, a bunch of historians think this was a way for us to comprehend our own fears just about the power of industry. So getting tied to the tracks with a train barreling at you is kind of like an old-timey black mirror, but like a sepia-toned looking glass, if you will. It seems like, I think, a good way. And it builds up the drama, too, in, in the movie, because you see the train in the distance. You see it coming. You see the heroine or whomever it might be struggling to get out. So I guess it's a it's a great trope. But yeah, one that's been around a long time. Never trust a curly mustache. Exactly. That's your first clue. This guy's got some rope and a curly mustache. You're going to end up on a train track. Look out for snidely whiplash. <laughs> Julie Noble wants to know, how is it the people who live near tracks don't hear the trains anymore? Do you think that people get so used to it that it just becomes like part of breathing for them if i may quote one of my favorite movies the blues brothers that scene where they go to elwood's apartment and he's by the l there in, in chicago jake says how often does the train go by elwood says so often you won't notice and i i think there's some truth to that you know i myself i live uh, near the airport so you know we have airplanes flying over fairly constantly at a certain point you just Tune them out. You know, they become background noise. We can get used to a lot of different things. It's the same for people who live along the railroad tracks. You, know, you kind of get used to it and the sound just eventually fades away and disappears and buried into your subconscious. Now, for more on this, look up neural adaptation or sensory adaptation. The first Google results use living close to train tracks as an actual example. Right. I live on a busy street and I'm sure there are so many more ambulances than I realize. But yeah, Julie Noble says, I live a block and a half from a track and we'll be on the phone, windows closed, and the other person will say, oh my God, is that a train? And I seriously don't notice it. <laughs> All right. Um, Carrie Strud wants to know, why do commuter trains like Chicago's Metro have to rent track time from the railroad lines? So I guess there's freight interference during during rush hour that's kind of what we what you were talking about yeah yeah there's been a big shift uh you know the railroads as soon as they started losing money on passenger business which really goes back to the 20s if not before but railroads got out of the passenger business especially after the highway system in the late 1950s through the 60s amtrak came on the scene in 1971 and yes amtrak basically is a tenant or a guest on the freight railroad now, theoretically the freight railroads are supposed to give preferential treatment to amtrak but in the real world it doesn't always work out that way I had no idea that they, that that was like a shared situation. They, they have like a timeshare on the tracks, essentially. Am I the only one who thought that Amtrak has been around for like a century? Okay. John Worcester 
I love this question. It says, back in the day, railroads seemed to have become the authority for setting the correct time in history. How did that happen? Yes, and that's uh, one of the railroads' legacies that's with us today, standard time and time zones in the United States. Uh, you know, Prior to that, every town kind of decided noon was whenever the sun was the highest point over City Hall, the church, whatever it might be. So, you know, that's fine if you live in, in a world that's only, you know, maybe 15, 20 miles radius, but not so good when you're on railroads where time, especially in those days before they had electronic signaling, you know, the timetable was absolute. If a train had to go by at 1.10 p.m., then it better be there at that time because other trains are counting on it so they can pass it safely and, and whatnot. So, railroads very early standardized time. You know, it went nationwide in, what, 1883, I think, somewhere thereabouts. And uh, with that, now railroads could coordinate their schedules more efficiently and, and more safely, frankly. Yeah. like No one wants to be on a platform being like, is it noon or two? I don't know. My horse got thirsty, so it's got to be 11. You're like, What? Sunday, November 18th, 1883, all of the U.S. railroads synchronized their clocks. And then way later, in 1918, Standard Time became an official law. But it wasn't until 2005, with the advent of texting, when I'm on my way became standard language to mean I haven't yet left the house, so just order without me. Do you get as jazzed about subways as you do about locomotives? I, I do. I, I'm uh, I'm particularly fond of the uh, the Washington Metro system, and, and I uh, they opened up the new Silver Line. You know, not quite all the way to Dulles, but I made a point. My wife and I traveled out there. And we simply rode there to the end of the line and back. So I could say I've done that mileage. So I have ridden every mile of that subway system. I haven't done every other one, but uh, some people do that. They they just travel around the world, traveling different uh, subway systems. It's uh, it's a good time for them. Now, do you? Look out the window the whole time, or do you just like read a book and kick back? I like to look out the window. I like, you know, you can't really do that when you're underground, but I love it when you're above ground because, again, you get a different view on, on things and especially fun there when you're running through the median of I 66 to kind of laugh at all the traffic that's stuck there going nowhere. <laughs> ha ha, I'm going by at 35 miles an hour. Have a good time, sucker. So it's a Schadenfreude thing. Yeah. A pharaoh equinology Schadenfreude. Sure. Rolls off the tongue. Brooke Basson asked this question, which I also like to ask, do you have a favorite movie that takes place on a train? Oh, that's a great question. I, I have uh, I have a few favorites, actually, I could talk about. One is maybe the greatest train movie and one of the greatest movies of all time, and that's Buster Keaton in The General from 1926, uh, one of the highlights of silent cinema in, in Keaton did some incredible stunts in that movie that OSHA would not allow anybody to try today, but absolutely worth watching. Was there any train spotting in train spotting? Uh, yeah, I, I think the train spotting they were doing was a different sort than actual train spotting. There were there were tracks involved, but they were not railroad tracks. We'll leave it at that. Oh, God, I never really got that pun. <laughs> I like The Great Locomotive Chase with uh, Fess Parker. It was a Walt Disney movie made in 1956. Great Civil War adventure story, but actually based on the same story as The General, but it's more kind of by the facts for The Great Locomotive Chase. I also love uh, the first Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor joint movie, Silver Streak from 1976, which is like kind of a Hitchcockian story. Speaking of Hitchcock, North by Northwest has a great railroad scene in it, too, on the 20th Century Limited. So lots of great train movies out there. Oh, did you see The Murder on the Orient, Orient Express recently? I, I did, yes. Strictly to see the trains. I'm not particularly an Agatha Christie fan, but, you know, got to go see some trains in the movie. So not enough of them anymore. You're not a Johnny Depp fan? He looked busted in that, I gotta say. Yeah, that he did. Yeah. I would feel bad saying this, but I don't. Elizabeth Bassett wants to know, how do trains stack up in terms of efficiency and cost against semi-trucks? 
Yeah, there's really no more efficient method of overland travel than the railroad. And you can't beat that. Downside, of course, is when it comes to, to delivering that freight. You've got to take things off the, the train and load it onto a semi-truck for that last mile, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a semi-truck, you just leave it on, on the truck and take it right to the door. Uh, there's been a lot of intermodal transportation now in the last uh, few decades where you know items will come, say, from Asia, and they'll travel by ship in these large 40-foot containers. And then that container gets moved by a giant crane onto a flat car, and it moves by rail to some point in the middle of the country, and then that container gets moved off the flat car, put onto a semi-trailer, and then can be delivered. So you're not unpacking the objects, you're just moving the actual trailer, for lack of a better term, the container. Yeah, it's kind of like a Lego goes from this thing to that thing to that thing. Yeah, yeah, very much like that. Yeah, which is pretty cool. It's like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty slick. Yeah. And then when you're done, you can take the shipping container and make a coffee shop in Brooklyn out of it. Yeah, there you can. Or, or yeah, a small house or something. Mm-hmm. Or something. So I looked, and you can buy a 400-square-foot house made out of a shipping container on Amazon. It'll cost you $36,000, and the reviews are very bad. It said it was overpriced. Then I found one for fifteen grand on Etsy, but really, these shipping containers are like $2,000 used if you just want to Pinterest it up and put a little elbow grease into some DIY living in a metal box. Also, this next question is what, when I was a journalist at the LA Times, I learned was called, and I'm just going to bleep this because this is one of the very few non-sweary episodes because I work with a Henry Ford on a children's show, but this question is the whole question. It's the great question you save for the end of the interview, just in case it f***s up your rapport to all and they tell you to go to So Dan Goding asked the awkward and wonderful question. What was Henry Ford's role in trains in America? And is that ever weird for you to be working at the Henry Ford when Ford was much more of an automotive proponent proponent than perhaps locomotive? Yeah, Henry Ford is nothing if not a study in contrast. So this is another example. I think he would have counted himself a ferroequinologist. He used to talk about, when he grew up here in Dearborn, running down to the Michigan Central track and waving at the engineer as he went by. A lot of the locomotives we have in our collection, he personally collected. He built that replica Civil War era coach for the dedication of this museum because he thought he had to have a proper train here for the ceremony. He actually owned a railroad for a few years. He bought the Detroit, Toledo, and Ironton, which is a local line here that runs from the Detroit area down to the Ohio River. He invested something like $15 million improving that railroad. He had all the engineers wear spotless white uniforms, maybe not the best color choice in retrospect. (laughs) That's like wearing a white jumpsuit on day 27, dude, if you know what I mean. He had them polish up the locomotives with shiny brass so they looked their absolute best. So, you know, he actually loved railroads. And, uh, I, you know, I don't think he set out to build the Model T with the intent of killing railroads. He was probably as surprised, like many other people, at how quickly the automobile caught on and how uh, effectively it, it wiped out other competing transportation methods. But, you know, he traveled by a private rail car. He, he enjoyed trains right up to the end of his life. So there you go. The king of cars, Doug Trains. What's the coolest train in the world? <laughs> that's that's a great question. The one that's operating in front of you right now, I would say. And I think a lot of ferroequinologists would agree with that. <laughs> Whatever you see rumble by is the coolest. Exactly right. Yep. yep. Is, uh, is there any flimflam about trains you'd like to debunk? Any myths that you're like, come on, people? Well, the, the one that we already talked about, about what is a train versus a locomotive, I think is, is a pretty big one. So I'm glad we got that uh, taken care of. Right. And last two questions always. Um, what's 
the suckiest thing about your job? What's the hardest or most annoying thing about your job that you're like, Ugh. Well, you know, I, I have a lot of people who will uh, walk up to me and say, wow, you must have a dream job. And, and I have to say, it's enjoyable. This is not to cut on it, but, you know, it, it's not as though I walk through the museum with a box of popcorn every day looking at the exhibits. I mean, it has its bad days, too. And uh, one of the challenges, I think, is is the frustration in not being able to get definitive answers to some things. You know, when a lot of these early uh, pieces, not just the locomotives, but everything we have in the museum was collected in the late 20s, early 30s. Record keeping was not what we might have today. So, you know, you, there are certain answers that we'll never be able to find here. So that can be frustrating and, uh, you know, it can be difficult to, um, to, to try and tell all the stories that you want to tell because you just don't have the time to go into the detail. There's always some other pressing activity you have to take care of. So, uh, yeah, th- those are frustrations, but on the whole, it's, it's a lot of fun. So a lack of omniscience. We'll just chalk it up to not knowing everything in the known universe and space and time. Yeah. If I could know that, this job would be pie, you know? <laughs> And what's your favorite thing about trains or your job? Uh, well, uh, yeah, this is, well, my fa- I can answer both right. My favorite uh, thing about trains is I get to work with them in my job. My favorite thing about my job is the trains. But no, I, uh, my favorite part of the job, what I really love here is that, you know, there are few, few jobs out there where you can get instant gratification. You know, when I'm up there in the office banging away at the computer or buried in books, I get kind of frustrated. I can walk out into the museum here and I can see people actually enjoying the work that we do and, you know, hopefully learning something while they're here too. So that's really rewarding. And I think the best part about the job and the best part about trains, you know, I, I mentioned the size, but I, I there, no one will ever beat the magic of a steam locomotive. You know, they are, in a sense, living creatures. You know, they hiss, they, they roar, they make noises, smells, and sounds that you just don't find anywhere else. And you know, we haven't used steam locomotives in any big capacity in this country for more than 60 years now. And yet people still know what they sound like. They still love them. And they still, I think for a lot of people, are the first thing that comes into your head when you think train. Oh, yeah, that hoo like... Absolutely. Billowing smoke. Yeah, of course. And um, where can people find you? Or do you have anything, any train resources to point to? Yeah, they they can find me right here at the uh, the Henry Ford in Dearborn, Michigan. They can come out and see some of our stationary locomotives in the museum, or they can ride behind a, a live steam locomotive through Greenfield Village on our track. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. I learned so much. My pleasure. So the next time you see a train, feel free to audibly say, woo woo, for so many reasons. And also, please, no selfies near trains. And they're not paying me to make this episode, but to see some of their historical artifacts, including trains, check out the Henry Ford on Instagram. Uh, Innovation Nation is shot there, and it's on CBS Saturday mornings, or you can find episodes online. I'm in every episode in case you want to have some Allie Ward content that doesn't usually involve the F word. Ologies is at Ologies on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm Allie Ward with one L. Uh, there are more links up at AllieWard.com slash Ologies. There's merch at OlogiesMerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch for being merch queens. Um, a link to the Camp Ologies September 15th event in Portland is just in the show notes. And thank you to Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for being wonderful admins in the Facebook Ologies podcast group. I said last week that it's the only reason I really go on Facebook anymore, but I'd like to issue a correction and say this week, photos of my brainiac and wonderful cousin Brooke Rennick getting married were a highlight. They were definitely a reason to scroll. Congratulations to you and Lauren. Uh, Congratulations to Stephen Ray Morris for being just cool as hell and to Nick Thorburn for being very good at writing and performing theme songs such as ours, which is titled Alley at the Museum. If you stick around through the credits, you know I tell you a secret. And this one, 
I feel like I'm going to hear a lot of feedback on this one, but I'm going to tell you, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter movies, ever. Not even one minute of them. And I have never admitted that to anyone, and I feel like I should see them, and I want to, but I, I feel like I should watch them all in one night, and it depends on the mood or the occasion. Do I have snacks? Like... Should I never do I should I never even see them? I read a little bit of one of the books and I got so hungry because they just kept talking about like treacle puddings and stuff and I was like, God damn it, I just need a snack. And so I've never watched the movies. But tell me how if I should watch the Harry Potter movies and if so how. Thank you. Okay, you're the best. Bye bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology. It's a lot of fun. For the next 15 seconds, picture yourself in a small town. Historic buildings with galleries, restaurants, micro distilleries. Forested ridgelines on the horizon. Wide alpine meadows. Evergreen forests threaded with trails. Friendly locals eager to guide you. And if you're not quite ready to leave this fantasy, chances are you're our kind. And you should check out visitparkcity.com right away. Park City, Utah. For the mountain kind. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com/music or call 855-437-2154. Planet, book it, live it. One travel.